Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. I'm Andrew Seri, Dean of the Graduate Division. We're pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present Robert Reich, this year's speaker in the Barbara Weinstock Memorial Lecture Series. In 1902, Harris Weinstock, a well-known businessman of Sacramento, presented the University of California with a fund to support an annual public lecture on the morals of trade on behalf of his wife, Barbara. Weinstock was fundamentally committed to the economic and moral progress of humankind. He wrote many newspaper columns and gave numerous lectures on topics ranging from Napoleon to socialism. Inspired by Spencer and Newton's essays on the morals of trade, which lamented the state of morals in the mid-19th century business world, he argued that a man does not profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. Harris Weinstock hoped that this lectureship would lead to a better life for those who spent their lives in commercial pursuits. He said, and I quote, let men and women the world over worship character rather than wealth. Let them do homage to the high-minded and pure-minded rather than the merely rich and powerful. And the ideal age will be at hand when trade will carry with it the badge of honor and the successful man of business will take the high place hitherto confined to the patriot and faithful servant of mankind." Past lecturers who have delivered the Barbara Weinstock Memorial Lectures on the Morals of Trade include Ralph Nader, Member of Parliament Neil Kinnock, and Nobel Laureate Amartya Sen. And now I'd like to welcome Professor Carlene Roberts, the chair of the Weinstock Lectureship Committee, to the podium to introduce Professor Reich. Before I introduce um, Professor Reich to you, all of you I'm sure know a great deal about him or you wouldn't be here. But before I do that, I'd like to explain why, if you look on the back of your program, you will find that there has never been a Weinstock lecturer who was on the faculty at Berkeley at the time he was asked to be the Weinstock lecturer. And the reason is pretty simple. We forgot. So at our meeting to select this lecture as chair of the Weinstock committee, I said, look, guys, we, and by the way, it is guys except for Ellen, uh, we have never had a professor who's on this faculty. And look at all the sterling professors we have, beginning with Robert Reich. And that was the end of that conversation. So I want to welcome you all and Professor Reich uh, today. And I'm not going to say too much about him because you have a little blurb about him and most of you know about him. And I've seen his books flying around here uh, pretty well. Um, he is the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School here at Berkeley, RAW. Um, and he was, as you probably know, the 22nd Secretary of Labor. And he was voted by Time Magazine as being the most, one of the most outstanding Secretaries of Labor. He's written quite a bit. I hear him on the radio quite a bit. And so, I, and, and so I think we're all anxious to get on with it and listen to Professor Rice. I just wanted to tell you something I didn't know. He graduated from Dartmouth, um, and then he went on to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and then he got a law degree from Yale. And he's, um, he has uh, 
talk to the Supreme Court on the part of the U.S. government. May I welcome Robert Reich. Thank you, Professor Roberts. Uh, and thank you all for coming today. Uh, a couple of other points uh, need to be said. I, uh, about uh, Harris Weinstock uh, and this lecture, The Morals of Trade, uh, many of you in this audience know that uh, about 12 years be before Harris Weinstock endowed this lecture and conceived of this lecture, uh, in 1890, uh, the great economist Alfred Marshall wrote his Principles of Economics. Uh, before that time, economics was not really thought of as a separate discipline. Uh, in most of the 19th century, it was all called moral, uh, political economy. And before that, in the 18th century, it was all called moral philosophy. Adam Smith uh, did not consider himself an economist, obviously. did not really even consider himself a political economist. He thought of himself as a moral philosopher. And so even though I'm going to be talking to you a lot about economics and politics, really underlying what I am saying uh, are questions of ethics, questions of how we live together as members of the same society and members of really the same human species on the globe. We're all reminded of that notion that we're all together as members of the same human species on the globe in which what we do is inevitably going to affect what others do, directly or indirectly, by the terrible tragedy now unfolding in Japan. Uh, it is, first and foremost, a human tragedy, and also an environmental tragedy. We don't know the dimensions yet, and probably, like you, I have been getting every piece of information I possibly can. But it is also, way down the list, an economic tragedy. Uh, Japan is the third largest economy in the world. In fact, of developed economies, so-called advanced economies, Japan is second only to us, which means that we have enormous amount of trade with Japan. Japan owns a lot of our debt, a lot of treasury bills. What happens in Japan, inevitably, quite apart from the human suffering quite apart from the environmental degradation, quite apart from these very, very important primary issues, there is also the economic interdependence and the economic consequences, which I'll get to in a moment. A question I want to address with you today is what is going to happen over the next few years in an economy, that is the United States economy, that is having a painfully difficult time getting out of the gravitational pull of the Great Recession. Now, if you listen to people on Wall Street, uh, if you appear, as I do, on CNBC or have, or, or listen to, I don't know, how many of you actually watch CNBC? Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> That's about what I expected. I debate uh, people on CNBC and on, on MSNBC and occasionally on the networks. Uh, and what passes for economic discussion on CNBC is very much Wall Street's point of view. 
that is, the issue is what's going to happen to stocks and bonds. It's not really the economy, or at least perhaps I should say it this way. The economy is defined as Wall Street, as stocks and bonds. And that is not to criticize CNBC or anybody else. That's what the business pages of the newspapers tell us. Uh, that's what many experts focus on because so many people are dependent on what happens on Wall Street. They want to know. Their retirement income depends on it. Uh, their future security depends on it. They like to know where Wall Street is heading. And I, I will tell you, uh, before the end of our 45 minutes, I'll tell you exactly where Wall Street is going. I'll do it very rapidly. So listen carefully. You may miss it because it's so, it, will, it will occur so rapidly. But that's not the economy. The, the real American economy is different from Wall Street. If you listen only to the cheerleaders on Wall Street, you see uh, we've had a, a huge bull market. Things are, are almost back to where they were before. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is over 12,000. Well, that's not quite where it was in 2007, but it's still getting way up there. And on top of that, corporate executive salaries and bonuses on Wall Street are just about back to where they were. And things are looking very good. Yes, there is some concern about the consequences of the United States economy of what's happened in Japan. And, and there is some worry about oil prices, given what's happening in the Middle East. But generally speaking, there's an enormous, almost buoyant confidence that comes out of Wall Street and out of corporate America. Corporate profits, by the way, are soaring. Uh, they really have, in my experience, never been, if you look at the major, large American corporations, almost never this high. Big companies in the United States are sitting on $1.8 trillion of cash. Now, those estimates vary between $1.4 trillion and $1.9 trillion. I saw yesterday at the end of 2010 it was $1.9 trillion. Uh, it's very difficult to estimate. It's hard to get. But we know it's a very big number. There's a lot of money, and they are sitting on it. It's in the form of cash, which means that big companies don't even know really what to do with it. Normally, normally after a recession... When large companies begin showing profits, they take those profits and they invest them in additional capacity, which means more jobs. Not immediately. There is a typically a, a jobless recovery, at least until businesses start feeling confident that consumers out there will buy and are capable of buying all of the goods and services that those companies are capable of producing at full employment. But then employment cranks up, and you get a, a virtuous cycle because as employment goes up and people get more wages and they feel more confident and they feel more secure, they buy more. And as they buy more, the economy naturally rises. Most of the business cycle in this country, at least most of our recent experiences with the business cycle, and by the cycle I'm talking about, uh, the cycle of, of exuberance, an expansion, uh, and then overshooting, which leads to a kind of downward momentum. Often, uh, recession is the ending point. Uh, most of those cycles, those business cycles, are really brought about by the Federal Reserve Board. 
and the Federal Reserve Board either overshoots or undershoots. The Fed either raises interest rates too high, trying to ward off inflation, or it keeps interest rates too low and generates just too much economic activity given the capacity of the country to avoid inflation. And that's what it is usually. But something is different this time. Something is different this time, profoundly different. There is a decoupling between the profits that the big companies are showing and the extraordinary gains on Wall Street on the one hand, and job growth on the other. There's a decoupling between how people at the top are doing, and they are doing extraordinarily well. I'm talking about the top 1% on the income scale, or the top 1% on the wealth scale, or even the top one-tenth of 1% to make a, a point even more dramatically they've never done as well. There's a dramatic gap between how they are doing and how everyone else is doing in this recovery. And going back to Harris Weinstock's concern about the morality of trade or the morality of our commercial system, something seems out of whack. And many people are asking themselves, what's going on? Now again, if you think of this as just the normal business cycle, you would expect that when the Federal Reserve Board kept interest rates near zero or at zero for as long as it has, we would see a lot of borrowing going on, and that borrowing would generate more economic activity. You would think when we had as much spending, at least until recently, as we had at the federal government level, that that would have generated enough of a so-called multiplier effect. That is, everyone who benefited directly by the spending would have more money in their pockets, they would turn around and buy more, and so on, that that would also have contributed to a vigorous recovery. You would expect that fiscal and monetary policies, as those are called, would by now have kicked in. And given how deep a hole we have found ourselves in in this great recession, you would think that by now, not only would unemployment start really dropping, but also the economy would start growing. I mean, if you're in a hole, to get back to the surface, back to where you were before, you do need more than normal growth. I mean, think of the economy as sort of a, 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 almost a, a, a climb, a kind of you're moving uphill, the economy is growing, but when you fall into a hole on that climb, then you need to have faster growth in order to just get back to the surface where you can then resume the growth you had before. So what we would normally assume would be instead of two and a half or three percent growth now, we would assume four or five or six percent or seven percent growth. It's not happening. Mystery upon mystery. Something is different. Well, I want to talk about that because it seems to me that what really is happening has a lot to do with long-term structural changes in the economy, changes that have a lot in turn to do with inequality of income and wealth and opportunity and political power. No one likes to talk about political power. I will, 
and less and less to do with the business cycle. And this is why it seems to me people are looking in the wrong place for answers. I, I, don't get me wrong. I do think the Fed needs to keep interest rates as low as possible. I do think and wish Washington were prepared to expand fiscal policy. I think it's the height of folly for Congress and the, for the president right now, right now, to be concerned about budget deficits. Yes, be concerned about it three or four or five years from now when we are out of the gravitational pull of the Great Recession. But right now, when we need as much aggregate demand as possible, when consumers are still scared when businesses are still sitting on so much money because they don't think that there are customers out there for their goods and services, when we have unemployment as high as we do nationally, 8.9%, 8.8%, but also almost 14 million Americans unemployed, half of them unemployed for a very long period of time, this is no time to pull in your horns and start cutting and whacking budget deficits. And oil prices are going up. And at the same time, state governments are pulling in and cutting their budgets. And many of the things that are being cut are desperately important to the working class, the middle class, and the poor who are suffering enormously in this. Don't do it. Not now. But having made that point, I want to go beyond and talk about inequality. Here, it seems to me, is the terrain that we really need to traverse in terms of understanding what's happening. The typical 30-year-old man, and I'll explain to you in a moment why I'm talking about the 30-year-old man. The typical 30-year-old man today, if he has a job, is earning, adjusted for inflation, no more than the typical 30-year-old man earned three decades ago, adjusted for inflation. Or to put it a different way, if you look at the bottom 90% of Americans and looked at their average wage, adjusted for inflation, each worker would be doing a little bit better, that is, would, would earn this year about $280 more than he or she earned three decades ago. That's not much to show over three decades. The American economy is much larger. It's twice as large as it was three decades ago. And yet, the median wage for those lucky enough to have jobs has gone nowhere, and if anything, it's gone down. Why? What's going on, and how does this relate to the Great Recession and the difficulty we're having getting out of the Great Recession. How does this relate to questions of ethics and morality? And also, where did all the money go? I mean, if the American economy is twice as large as it was 30 years ago, and if the median wage is pretty much stuck in neutral, then you've got to have some idea of where all the gains went. If you're in the top 
you are not stuck in neutral. Your share of total income doubled over the last 30 years. If they're in the top one-tenth of one percent, your share of the national income tripled over the last 30 years. We haven't seen this degree of concentration of income, and wealth is even more concentrated, since the 1920s. More about that in a moment. How have working families over the last 30 years managed to maintain their standard of living? How have they managed to continue to spend? Well, one of three ways. Uh, The first way was women going into paid work. In great numbers, starting in the late 1970s, increasing in the 1980s, increasing again in the 1990s, a huge number of women in the United States went into paid work. I wish I could tell you it was all because of the wonderful professional opportunities open to professional women beginning in the late 70s and starting in the 80s. No, that was not the primary reason. The primary reason that women went into paid work in great numbers, even those with young children, was because they needed to in order to prop up family incomes where male wage earners were actually showing declines in wages. That's the only way they could keep up their living standards. But, you know, we come to an end of that coping mechanism. In the 1960s, to give you an example, only about 20% of women with young children were in the paid workforce. I say paid because women always were working. The question is whether they were getting paid for their work. And 20% of American women in the 1960s were with young children, were in the paid workforce. Uh, By the 1980s and 1990s, we were up to 50 and 60%. In fact, by the 1990s, it was up to 60% of women with young children were in the paid workforce. Well, you, couldn't go, you can't go much beyond that. American families had to search for a second coping mechanism, a way of keeping going. And the second coping mechanism was for everybody to work longer hours. When I was Secretary of Labor, I remember looking over the data on the number of hours Americans were working, and I couldn't believe it. In terms of overtime, in terms of billable hours, in terms of second jobs, in terms of third jobs, uh, Americans had never worked that long, that hard, 350 hours a year longer than the typical European, longer even than the typical worker in Japan. Two incomes, everybody working longer. I used to have a demographic term I used, DINS, D-I-N-S, double income, no sex. (laughs) I don't know how we reproduced in those years. And And then that obviously was exhausted, that second coping mechanism, because there are only a certain number of hours people can work. And... Right about then, late 1990s, a third 
coping me- mechanism came along. It was almost as if the tr- there were trapezes, and you move from one to the other. There is just a trapeze, just in, just in time uh, to save us, to let us, uh, enable us to keep on maintaining our standard of living, and that third coping mechanism, that third trapeze, was rising housing values that enabled the working middle class to refinance their homes or to take out home equity loans, all of which enabled people to live better than they otherwise could live, going deeper and deeper into debt. But the rising home values seemed an easy means of maintaining that debt. Well, that proved illusory. When I came to Berkeley in 2006, I had an opportunity. I, I, I was very, very fortunate to get a, uh, an offer from University of California, Berkeley, to come and teach here, uh, leaving the East Coast, leaving the weather on the East Coast, leaving snow and sleet and horrid summers and everything that you don't even want to know about that occurs. Uh, but I, I bought a house. I bought a house uh, here in Berkeley. I think it was April. I think it was the first week of April of 2006, uh, which is important for you to know because that was when the housing market reached its zenith. <laughs> you see, my investment strategy has always been buy high, sell low. Those extraordinary housing values couldn't keep up. Uh, The debt load couldn't be maintained. Uh, There was no way that that's what turned out to be. A speculative bubble could continue. And obviously, it didn't. That debt bubble burst. And when it burst, the final coping mechanism also burst. There was no way that the typical American could continue to maintain the same living standard and continue to be a customer, continue to consume in ways that Americans had for three decades before. And without customers, or without as many customers, without people being as willing to buy, the economy is not going to hire that many people. Companies are not going to hire. Uh, The entire wheels of commerce begin grinding to a halt. Now, I know that the version of events that you have in your head about why the Great Recession occurred has much more to do with Wall Street's excesses than anything I've said to you so far. And I don't want to let Wall Street off the hook. Wall Street did overreach. And regulators who were supposed to look at Wall Street did look the other way. I'm just saying that behind all of this lies a deeper structural story that has more to do with the plight of the working and middle classes of America and stagnant incomes and the final failure of the third coping mechanism, which was debt, to enable people to continue to buy as before. Right after uh, President Obama was elected, he had a meeting of several of his economic advisors in Chicago, and I attended the meeting, 
And I remember Paul Volcker uh, was there, along with my colleague at Berkeley, Laura Tyson, and several others. Uh, Paul Volcker, as you may know, was former head of the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, he is very, very tall. He's remarkably tall. He's irresponsibly tall. Uh, I mean, in environmental terms, he uses up more energy and exudes more carbon than anybody I know. But in any event, we were talking about the Great Recession, and of course, this is a very important time. The new president has just been elected. Uh, things look like they're collapsing, and they were collapsing, uh, and the new president wants to know why, what's going on. And Paul Volcker, I remember, said, uh, Mr. President, uh, yes, Wall Street has gone berserk and exceeded uh, the boundaries that we expect of Wall Street, and there wasn't adequate regulation, but underlying all of this, Mr. President, underlying all of this is the simple fact that Americans spent more than they earned. They lived beyond their means for too long. Lived beyond our means. We have lived beyond our means. That's what Paul Volcker's view was, and that view you can still see around. It is a rather moralistic view, to go back to Harris Weinstock. But then Laura Tyson, my colleague here, piped up and she said, no, uh, Paul, I think you're wrong. I don't think the underlying problem is that Americans spent beyond their means or lived beyond their means. I think the problem is their means did not keep up. And of course, Laura was absolutely right. Their means did not keep up with what we would expect an expanding economy, a growing economy to permit. Now, this being Berkeley, many of you in this room Obviously, and I don't mean to sound in any way snarky about the comment I'm about to make, but this being Berkeley, many of you in this room uh, think about consumption in a way that many people in the rest of this country don't think about it. That is, to you, consumption is just the acquisition of a lot of material goods, just, just filling up houses with stuff. And maybe although I don't really want to presume to read your heads, maybe you may be saying to yourself, uh, look, what's wrong with us not consuming as much? In fact, we are consuming too much. Uh, we are consuming uh, about a, a quarter of the entire world's energy resources. Maybe it's a good thing that we're not consuming as much. I, I want to draw a distinction just for you in this room and for anybody who's watching on streaming video between consumption and consumerism. Uh, what you may be worried about, and I worry about it too, is just a, a mentality of consuming more and more and more. Uh, no, I'm talking about consumption in, more, in broader terms. It's not just individuals or families buying and consuming. It's also public goods. It's what we as a people, uh, as a nation, are able to afford to do. Uh, it's better education and more education. Uh, it's more health care and better health care. It's public transportation. It's all sorts of things that also could, if we did more of it, utilize our productive capacity as a nation. Some of that will actually be on a better environment. We 
can, if we spend more, and this sounds ironic and paradoxical, but if we spend more, we might actually be able to move away from carbon fuels. It means some investments in basic research in non-carbon-based fuels. You get my drift. I just want you to, in your heads, I want to cut off what I expect some questions might be. Isn't it good that we are not consuming as much? Again, consumerism, this is not an argument for consumerism. This is an argument for being having enough aggregate demand in the system to keep the system going. And that aggregate demand could come from a variety of sources, including sources that are public goods that everybody in this room or most of you might approve of. Now, I want to go back because some of you may, having heard this story, want to understand, because obviously what, we're, what I'm doing now is trying to explain why we are in the predicament we're in, why it's so hard to get out of the gravitational pull of the Great Recession, what we need to do next what we need to do next, what, I, what I'm trying to lay the foundation for is that kind of next move. How do we get out of the, of the predicament we're in? Some of you may be asking yourselves right now, what do we know about why, beginning three decades ago, so much of the nation's income and wealth started going to the top? I mean, there must be some reason for all of this. And did it ever happen before? Uh, the answer is yes and yes. There is a reason, and it did happen before. And by looking at when it happened before, we can get a glimpse at or a clue as to why it began happening again beginning in the late 70s and beginning in the 1980s. And maybe that will give us some notion of what to do next, of what we need to do next. In 2007, the top 1% by income in the United States got 23.5% of total national income. Now, as I said to you before, that was more than double what they had 30 years before. 30 years before, they were getting about 9 or 9.5% of total national income. Now, Go back in time in the United States and ask yourself, when was it that the top 1% had anything close to 23.5% of total national income? Was there another time? And if you look at the data, what you see is that there was another time. In fact, there was another year that almost remarkably exactly parallels the peak year of 2007 in terms of concentration of income. And that other year is 1928. And then came 1929. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Great Crash and also the 2008 crash were necessarily only responsive to these widening disparities, but there are very important parallels. The header of the Federal Reserve Board between 19, 
34 and 1948, is a man named Mariner Eccles. How many of you have heard of Mariner Eccles? Put up your hand. I'm surprised, 17 of you. Uh, Mariner Eccles, and, and, and in researching my latest book about all of this, uh, I came across Mariner Eccles' work on the Great Depression. Mariner Eccles came to the conclusion that the Great Depression was a function of widening inequality because, he said, so much income concentrated at the top that the only way the vast majority of Americans could keep spending and maintain the economy and the government could keep maintaining to the extent that government was spending in those days was by means of going deeper and deeper into debt. And that debt bubble could not be sustained. It exploded. And it exploded in 1929. And so there is a very powerful parallel. What did Franklin D. Roosevelt do? He did two things. Belatedly. One of them he did very poorly. One of them he turned out he did very well, but he didn't know he was doing it. What did Barack Obama do after 2008? Well, he did one of the things that Franklin D. Roosevelt, and he did do, uh, did, but he did, them, uh, did it much better than Franklin D. Roosevelt did, but he didn't do the other thing that Franklin D. Roosevelt did. Uh, let me stop being so opaque. <laughs> Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, first of all, there was a liquidity crisis, a banking crisis. Uh, what Franklin D. Roosevelt did, and he built upon Herbert Hoover, uh, he basically closed the banks. He, tried to provide some more liquidity. He didn't know exactly what he was doing. There were runs on banks. You remember Jimmy Stewart? It's a wonderful life. Your money is in her property and her money is in your property. It didn't matter. There were still runs on banks, but Franklin D. Roosevelt did try to stop the runs on the banks with pumping in more money, not nearly enough. The Obama administration learned from that. Uh, ben Bernanke was a, it was a student. He had written a lot about the Great Depression. Uh, and others in the, both the George W. Bush administration, but more importantly, in the Obama administration, understood the importance of flooding the economy with liquidity, of getting confidence in the banks back, uh, even to the extent of giving the banks, the major banks, a taxpayer-funded bailout. Now, it's easy to say in retrospect, but even at the time, I was advising that the bailout of the banks be connected to conditions put on the banks. Conditions such as supporting legislation that would allow homeowners to declare bankruptcy on their first homes and thereby give them a little bit more leverage in their negotiations with lenders. Uh, putting caps on bonuses and so forth, but none of this happened. But nevertheless, uh, this was the lesson that came out of the Great Depression. Uh, what you do when you have a banking crisis, when you have a financial crisis. And I think that uh, really the Obama administration, apart from not 
being tough enough with the banks, uh, did that pretty well. We avoided a meltdown. Unfortunate choice of word right now. But what the Obama administration did not do that Franklin D. Roosevelt did do. And herein lies a very important lesson unlearned. Franklin D. Roosevelt took an economy in which the gap between the very rich, the super rich and everybody else was growing immeasurably and did several things that actually changed the equation. Number one, the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, creating a right to collective bargaining, imposing on employers the duty to bargain in good faith with employees. That, it turned out, had a huge effect by the 1950s when 35% of Americans were in trade unions. And those, I'm talking about American workers, and those who were not in trade unions benefited by the negotiations that unions created with employers because the prevailing wages really were set even in the non-union sector by employers who feared that if they did not mimic what was in those labor agreements, they would be next to become unionized. So they had a, it had an effect all over the economy. Franklin D. Roosevelt also created a minimum wage, a 40-hour work week with time and a half for overtime, social security, including aid for families with dependent children, disability came later, a long list of things that we almost take for granted now. Unemployment insurance, 1938. All of the foundation stones for a modern economy based on the idea that workers are also consumers. And there is no way in which an economy can function unless that basic bargain linking workers and their productivity to their pay so that they can turn around and consume would be maintained. By the 1950s, not only did we have all of that, but we also had a GI Bill. Many Americans were attending college we had a huge investment in infrastructure under Eisenhower, the National Defense Highway Act, creating the entire interstate highway system. After Sputnik, investments in the education and training of a whole generation of science and mathematics teachers and new investments in the classrooms in terms of math and science teaching. We rebuilt Europe in those years. We rebuilt Japan. How did we do that after the Second World War? Well, in part because our economy was growing very fast. But I remember we also had a huge deficit. In fact, we came out of World War II with a national debt that was, as a proportion of our whole national product, over 100%. The national debt 
was larger than the yearly national product of the United States after World War II. I remember in 1950, my father, this was my first economics lesson, my father saying to me, Bobby, you and your children and your children's children will be paying the national debt created by Franklin D. Roosevelt. It scared the hell out of me. I could remember I couldn't sleep. I didn't know what a national debt was, but I knew, I knew it would haunt me and my children and my children's children. But my father, who was right about most things, was wrong. How did we afford all of that? Well, we afforded it because the economy grew so buoyantly. Because that pact between workers and employers, many of the investments that had been made in education and in infrastructure began to pay off. Also, the marginal income tax on the highest earners was substantially higher. Uh, coming out of the Second World War, it was over 70%. And under Dwight D. Eisenhower, who nobody, to my mind, has ever accused of being a socialist. Republican, former general Dwight D. Eisenhower, the marginal income tax on the top earners was 91%. Now, of course, the effective rate, when you got rid of all the deductions and the tax credits, was lower than that, but still much, much higher than anybody is talking about today. My point to you is that the legacy of the New Deal right through Truman and Eisenhower, right through John F. Kennedy and Johnson, Right through those years, those legacies of public investment and shared prosperity and shared sacrifice and a deal, a basic bargain between employers and employees built a new American economy that grew faster than the economy has ever grown since. In those 30 years after the Second World War, we grew, we grew. Sometimes people ask me, when I talk about where we should go, I talk about the principles of shared prosperity and shared sacrifice. I talk about public investment in education and infrastructure, basic research and development. I talk about renewing the bargain between employers and employees. People say to me, name a nation. What are you talking about, Netherlands? The Netherlands or, or Sweden or Norway? They're not like us. Are you talking about Canada? They're socialists up there. People say to me, and I get on these talk shows, and, they, and, and people from the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation, they say, you're a socialist. You're talking about, uh, you're talking about Scandinavia. And I say, no, I'm talking about the United States. For the 30 years after the Second World War, we did it here. And if we did it in the 30 years after the Second World War, there's no reason we can't do it again in terms of those principles. We can't exactly replicate precisely what we did then. We've got to do something different and we can talk about individual, specific public policies, all I'm saying to you is that those principles have got to guide us once again. And going back to 
Harris Weinstock and his concern about morals and trade, fundamentally, fundamentally, these principles are ethical principles about how we live together. It's just coincidental that these principles also support a vibrant and buoyant economy. In other words, if we adhere to these principles, we all gain. Even people at the top would do better to have a smaller percentage of a rapidly growing buoyant economy than they would with a larger percentage, as they have now, of an economy that is anemic and prone more than ever before to booms and busts. One final point, and then I invite your questions. There's a great deal of anger in America, if you haven't seen it or experienced it already. On one of these talk shows that I alluded to before, on television, uh, not long ago, the producer, during a station break, said to me in my earpiece, you need to be angrier. And I said, I, I'm sorry, I thought we were having a very respectful, good discussion. I don't want to be angrier. And she said, you have to be angrier. And I said, why do I have to be angrier? And she said, you have to be angrier because people are surfing through the channels and they stop when people are yelling at each other because it's like a gladiator contest. It's very exciting. And I said, I don't want to do that. She said, you must. And I'm afraid at that point... I lost my temper. <laughs> but I think the reason that people, when they are surfing through channels, want a gladiator contest has something to do with a degree of frustration, anxiety, and anger so many people feel out there who want to work, who know that they've played by the rules, who feel that somehow the game is rigged against them. A few days ago, I got a call from somebody who, and I checked on this, was an organizer of the Tea Party. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, it's very interesting to talk to you because I, I know we don't see eye to eye on many issues. But it turned out after about 45 minutes of talking, I discovered that there was a great deal of overlap. One of the most surprising points of overlap that I hadn't really thought through, but this person reminded me, the Tea Party got its start in a kind of revulsion against the bailout of Wall Street. That's what started it. And I asked, well, why, why are you so much against government? Why are you not against Wall Street and big business? Why have you taken out your ire against government? And the response I got back was because we don't trust that government is not going to be in the pocket of big business and Wall Street. Well, I can't say that I became a Tea Partier at that moment, but I at least understood that there is a vast overlap 
between progressives who are very upset about the direction things are going in and Tea Partiers and others who are very upset. And I'm not talking about the fellow who gets out the window, yells out the window, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to stand for it anymore. I'm talking about genuine upset that is based upon some sense that the game is rigged in favor of those with wealth and power. So what we also need to do, in addition to adhering to principles of shared prosperity and shared sacrifice, a new contract between labor and management, and also public investment, what we also need to do is dedicate ourselves to freeing our democracy from the scourge of big money. The decision by the Supreme Court last year in Citizens United against the Federal Election Commission was one of the most grotesque decisions ever enunciated by the Supreme Court, in my view. And I have no doubt that with a few new Supreme Court appointees, hopefully from President Obama or a successor who has the same values, that case will be reversed. If not, we are going to see the game rigged more and more. More and more, more big money from big corporations, the attempt to reduce taxes on the rich, the attempt to starve government and make it impossible for people to have the education and the infrastructure and the public investments that they so desperately need, while all the time turning people in the middle class and working class against each other, against public employees, against the poor, against immigrants, against unions, against China. You see how many scapegoats there are? We've got to get beyond scapegoating and we've got to return to original principles that we learned 75 years ago. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.